Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the last episode, the one-hour interview I did on the radio on the Deborah Ruffini Show. It was broadcast live from England on Artist First Radio Network. We had a lot of fun doing that, and I hope you enjoy it. But this time, today, we're going into a new topic. We're going into episode number 164 of Scripture Uncovered, which I've titled Rewriting Mark. Now, as most of you know, I've been teaching Scripture for a long time nearly 30 years on the English department faculty at UCLA, and since 1995 in the community at large when I started Logos Bible Study. My goal has always been to teach verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation, including the Deuterocanonical books or the Apocrypha. I've done that over a one-year cycle, that is, the One Year Bible, which is now a popular podcast on Spotify. A five-year cycle, which is featured on audible.com with thousands of five-star reviews. And a seven-year cycle, which is featured in our course catalog on logosbiblestudy.com. 22 university-level courses consisting of 450 video lessons, over 20,000 pages of written material, classic artwork, satellite imagery maps, and hundreds of professional photographs taken on-site in Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Spain, and the Aegean and Mediterranean Seas, the world of the Bible, to which we've traveled for the last, oh gosh, 30 years. So at this point, Mission accomplished. Well, sort of. Now, I'm going back over the seven-year cycle courses, the advanced university-level courses, revising and fine-tuning them. I would typically teach my seven-year program by moving back and forth through the Bible. Genesis, Matthew, Exodus, Mark, Leviticus, Luke, and so on, weaving the fabric of Scripture as I made my way through the texts. After seven years of doing that, however, when I go back to the beginning, to year one, I find that I've learned a whole lot in the process, and the earlier courses need to be revised accordingly. Consequently, I just finished entirely rewriting the Matthew course and teaching the rewrite as a featured course online on LogosBibleStudy.com. Now I'm completely rewriting the Mark course, and I'm seeing things in Mark that I've never seen before, things that I've overlooked or simply didn't know about on the first go-around. Now it's fairly certain that Mark was the first to put the gospel story into written form, and his audience was the Christian community in Rome. 
Mark was a Jew writing for a predominantly Gentile audience in the capital of the Roman Empire sometime in the AD 60s. And Mark's gospel is unique. It's urgent, exploding out of the starting blocks with a dramatic proclamation. Mark writes, beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, as it has been written in Isaiah the prophet. The word beginning in Greek is arche, as in archaeology, the study of beginnings. It's the very same word that begins Genesis in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Septuagint, in the beginning. In Mark, no definite article the precedes beginning, although most translators, wrongly in my opinion, supply it. Grammatically, this lack of a definite article is called an anarthrous construction. It's relatively common in ancient Greek, and here it serves to create an abrupt start, a sudden proclamation, a thunderclap on a sunny afternoon, if you will, rather than a measured introduction. As a herald, Mark proclaims God's entrance into history, and he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Gospel, euangelion, is the key word in Mark's prologue. It's his theme, the very substance and essence of his narrative. The Greek term euangelion means far more than good news or good report, as it originally meant in classical literature and as Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. In Mark, it embodies the entire Christian message, the person, words, and works of Jesus. So important is the Gospel in Mark that it frames his prologue and provides the launching pad for the story proper. Verse 1 reads, Beginning the Gospel, the euangelion of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And verse 15 closes with Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is fast approaching. Repent and believe in the gospel, the euangelion. In Mark's prologue, gospel forms an inclusio, bookends, if you will, that both highlight and illuminate the text in between. In this gospel, this euangelion, which is rooted back in the Old Testament and that bursts forth in the New, that so frightens the characters who people Mark's, Mark's story. When Jesus stills the storm, his disciples are terrified. Phobeo, as in phobia saying, who is this, that even the wind and the lake obey him? When he drives out legion from the demonized man, and the garrisons see the man sitting down clothed and in his right mind, they were terrified. And when the women at the empty tomb are told to tell Peter and the disciples of Jesus' resurrection, trembling and amazement gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were terrified. This intrusion of the gospel into daily life, 
shocks and disorients those it touches. They draw back, frozen with fear, bewildered and terrified. Like a vector shot from eternity into the present, the gospel intersects reality at precisely Mark's moment in time, accompanied by the dramatic proclamation, beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. This abrupt and rather shocking message targets the Gentile believers in Rome during the 60s. And if we're to understand Mark's gospel and place it in its proper context, we must understand Mark's audience, the people to whom Mark addresses the message. The believers in Rome in the 60s lived at a time of enormous upheaval, a very, very dangerous time for the incipient church. To capture a sense of the danger they faced, we need to place the tiny Roman church in its correct historical and cultural context. And we begin to do so by understanding the size and structure of the believing community. Now, it's notoriously difficult to estimate populations in the ancient world. But it's generally accepted that at the time of Constantine issuing his Edict of Milan in AD 312, the Roman Empire had a population of roughly 60 million people, about 10% of whom were Christians, or 6 million. Now, if we work backward, assuming a population growth rate of 40% per decade, which according to those who study demographics is about right, that would give us 1,867 Christians in the Roman Empire in AD 60. 1,867. Now Rome was the largest city in the empire by half, followed by Alexandria, Egypt, Syrian Antioch, Carthage, and Ephesus. So we might reasonably say that fewer than a thousand Christians lived in the city of Rome at that time. Less than one-tenth of one percent of the entire urban population in Rome. That's a surprisingly small number, but it's right on target. If our demographics are in the right ballpark, an overall 40% growth rate each decade would produce the agreed-upon 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire by AD 312. And that's a fairly solid number. Now recall as well that first-century Christian communities met in house churches, small numbers of people gathering in a single room, praying together, sharing a meal, and recounting stories about Jesus about who he is and what he said and did, and perhaps socializing afterward. House churches continued well into the third century. Small, rather independent gatherings of local believers, sometimes hosting traveling preachers and teachers. It wasn't until the early to mid third century, that is in the 200s, that the growing church built separate structures for their meetings. We have an example of this with the Dura Europas Church in eastern Syria. 
The Dura Europas Church on the Euphrates River in eastern Syria was a house church converted sometime between 233 and 256 into a building used exclusively for liturgical worship. But that's way up in the 200s, 233 to 256. So travel back in time with me to the second half of the first century, AD 50 to 100, to the winter of AD 54, when St. Paul writes from Ephesus to the church in Corinth, saying in closing that Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly, and so does the church that meets at their house. We read that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. And when St. Paul writes to the church in Rome in A.D. 57, Aquila and Priscilla have returned to Rome, and Paul urges those in Rome who are reading his epistle to greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets at their house. Now, if we were to, if we were believers in Rome in those days, perhaps you and I would join Priscilla and Aquila in the living room, a group of say 10 to 15 people sharing a meal, celebrating the Eucharist, singing hymns, and talking about events of the day. And just what were those events. Well, let's start our investigation with Julia Agrippina. Oh, she's a real piece of work. She lived from AD 15 to 59. She was the great-granddaughter of Caesar Augustus, the adoptive granddaughter of the Emperor Tiberius, the sister of the Emperor Caligula, the wife of the Emperor Claudius, and the mother of the Emperor Nero. Through incestuous marriages, imperial intrigue, and duplicitous assassinations, Julia Agrippina engineered her son's rise to power. After poisoning Claudius, her uncle and third husband, her 17-year-old son Nero became emperor in AD 54, with Agrippina controlling the reins of power. Quickly, however, Nero's relations with his mother deteriorated, ending by Nero having her murdered in A.D. 59. On 18 July A.D. 64, the Great Fire of Rome erupted, the conflagration destroying a large portion of the city. According to the historian Tacitus, the fire raged for five days destroying three of 14 districts and severely damaging seven others. Both Suetonius and Cassius Dio point to Nero as the arsonist, who wanted to clear a large part of Rome to build a new palace complex. To deflect blame, Tacitus writes that Nero blamed the fire on Rome's Christians. He writes, therefore, to put an end to the rumor, Nero created a diversion and subjected to the most extraordinary tortures those called Christians, hated for their abominations by the common people. The originator of this name was Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Repressed for the time being, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea 
the original source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become popular. So an arrest was made of all who confessed. Then, on the basis of their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of arson as for hatred of the human race. Both St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred in Rome during this time, A.D. 64-68. to 68. The persecution ended with Nero's death. The Roman Senate had declared him a public enemy of the Roman people and announced their intention to have him executed. With that, Nero turned to suicide. But, too cowardly to carry it out, he enlisted his private secretary, Epaphroditus, to do the deed. Nero died on 9 June A.D. 68, the sixth anniversary of his murdering his stepsister and first wife, Octavia. Following Nero's death, civil war erupted and four emperors reigned in quick succession. Galba reigned for eight months, Otho for two months, Vitellius for eight months, and finally Vespasian, who reigned for ten years. The first three were dispatched through murder or suicide within a year. Now, at this time of enormous political chaos, in AD 66, the great Jewish revolt broke out in Palestine. Nero chose the brilliant general and future emperor Vespasian to suppress it. Fielding more than 50,000 combat troops, Vespasian began operations in Galilee. By AD 68, he had crushed opposition in the north, moved his headquarters to Caesarea Maritima, the deep water port on the Mediterranean, and methodically began clearing the coast. Meanwhile, the defeated Jewish leaders in Galilee escaped to Jerusalem, where a bitter civil war among the Jews erupted, pitting the fanatical zealots and Sakari against the more moderate Sadducees and Pharisees. By AD 68, the entire Jerusalem leadership and their followers were dead, having been killed by their fellow Jews, and the zealots held the temple complex, using it as a staging area for their war against Rome. With Nero's death in Rome, Vespasian's troops proclaimed him emperor, support spread quickly, and in AD 69, Vespasian left Jerusalem for Rome to claim the throne, leaving his son Titus to conclude the war in Jerusalem. By the summer of AD 70, Tacitus had breached the city walls and captured the temple. During the fierce fighting, the temple complex caught fire, and on Tisha B'Av, 29-30 July, A.D. 70, the temple fell, literally. A thousand years of Jewish temple worship ended in a single day. The fire then spread quickly to the city itself, destroying most of Jerusalem. Tacitus writes that no fewer than 600,000 Jews fought the Romans in Jerusalem. Those captured were crucified, up to 500 a day, 
and historians estimate that 1.2 million Jews died during the span of the Jewish revolt, A.D. 66 to 73. It was the greatest catastrophe in Jewish, Jewish history until the Nazi Holocaust of 1939 to 1944. In A.D. 66, the Jews declared war on the Roman Empire. That is about the dumbest decision anyone ever made. Now, do you see where I'm headed with this? As less than 0.1% of the population in Rome, as the target of Roman persecution and scapegoating, and as Christians being viewed as a very minor sect of Judaism, who proclaims Jesus as a king who will usher in a new kingdom, the Christians in Rome during the 60s were vulnerable and justifiably they were terrified. That is the audience to whom Mark addresses his gospel, a gospel that urges, indeed demands, that the gospel message be preached to the entire Roman world by the very people who are cowering in their homes, keeping a low profile. Mark must develop a narrative strategy that creates a sense of urgency, a strategy that encourages a fearful people to stand up and proclaim the gospel, even in the very face of death. And that is precisely what Mark does. And what I must do is rewrite our Mark course to reflect that reality. So that's what I'm doing, folks. I'll have that done, I hope, pretty soon. And we'll have it be a featured course on LogosBibleStudy.com. Wish me luck. It's a big job. So thank you for being here with me. I look forward to seeing you again, talking with you again next week. Bye-bye, gang.